0: You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So we're walking through the book of Judges, and I want to read today for us, beginning in chapter 2, verse 11, all the way to chapter 3, verse 6. And you'll see that in your, the Bible handed out to you. It's on page 115. But, but before we're done today, we're going to flip over. And in the blue Bible, if you have one, we're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 7. And, and as I've shared with you before, I want you to be able to connect the dots of the narrative of God's redeeming his people throughout the Old Testament. And so we're going to read verse 11. Now up to this point, we've seen an introduction to this pattern of behavior of God's people after they have moved into the land that was promised to them. So, the book preceding the book of Judges, the book of Joshua, and I'm certain, I, if I haven't already, I will be switching up the words Joshua and Judges. I will be mixing them up. Just be like, I think he meant, yes, that's what he meant. Give me the benefit of the doubt on that. I'm certain. If, I've already done it a couple of times, I'll keep doing it. But the book preceding this is the book of Joshua, where, where they are by God's grace, led into this promised land, delivered from captivity in Exodus from Egypt. And then they're after wandering, they, they, they come into and, in, and begin to inhabit and inherit this land. But what we see in the book of Judges is kind of the second generation, if you will. It's the inhabiting or the settling of the land. They're beginning to enjoy or understand what it means to live as people of God's inheritance. As I like to share with you, this is uh, the book of Judges is like a bunch of people who have inherited something very awesome from their, from their lineage, right? And, and as my family talks about good things that are handed down, can't have anything nice. So beginning in verse 11 of chapter 2, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. As the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, "'Because this people have transgressed my covenant,' that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice. I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the ways of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly. And he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war. To teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations. The five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites. And the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal-Hermon as far as Labo-Hamath, they were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord which He commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives. And their own daughters they gave to their sons. And they served their gods. I believe this is God's word. But my prayer is that it becomes more than just ink on a page. And it actually becomes the words of God for the people of God. I say that because in the next few weeks... I'll keep repeating that this, this really is the Word of God. This really is. And we'll see some things in this book that will make you think, really? Is this, why is this in here? What a desperate and awful story that I just read to you. People doing whatever they wanted, all the way to the climax of the book of Judges. The very last chapter, the very last verse says that people do whatever they want in their own eyes, whatever's right in their own eyes, because there was no king in Israel. That is that apart from godly leadership, people just do whatever they want. And as I even read, there's this this bleak story of people just kind of destroying one another that ends in the first few verses with their terrible distress. And then they just kind of like live in this angry place where God's wrath is on them. And they just, instead of kind of like, like, hey, let's get out of this, they're like, fine, we'll just make friends with it. Literally, let's just... Let's just mix our family with this. Did you catch that? The end, the story ends here. This, this synopsis, this summary, this introduction to the entirety of the book of Judges ends with them saying, Well, I guess we'll just figure out how to live here. And we'll start marrying these people and live not just among them, but then we'll start actually living with them. And what I want to begin to show you here is that this story of God's people doing awful, terrible things. It's actually the story of humanity. And there is a sense in which there are things that you'll see in this book that are unique to the ways in which they happened some 25, 2,600 years ago. And yet on the other hand, there are many things we'll see here that will sound exactly like what you see on any given day of your own life. And you're meant to ask the question, is there a meaning in all this? And maybe that's the question you're... Carrying as we speak, like what now? Is there a purpose to this life? Why am I here? And, and even in more literally, like, why am I like why am I in this? Why, how did I get here? And the distinctly Christian conviction is the invitation to consider there's a purpose. God's actually doing something. And so maybe if you're in this room and you're not a believer, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. I am so glad you're here because I want to invite you to consider the possibility that the fact that you're here might even be evidence that there is a God and that God is doing something and that God is not up there and out there but is drawing you into himself. And that's what we're confronted with even in this awful, terrible situation to consider. That even in the worst possible situations, God might actually be doing something. So there's three different themes I see pointed out here. We saw a couple of weeks ago, there was, a, there was this picture of a cycle that we're going to watch for the rest of this particular book of the Bible. But there's also some themes that are highlighted. They come into focus in this synopsis that if you don't begin to wrestle with them now, then you'll, you, you won't make much sense of judges, but then you really won't make much sense of life. And so one of the things we see Pointed out here is what we would call the sovereignty of God. Now that's a word that, that people throw out a lot and, and it's a word that is often misunderstood and a Webster just says it this way that to be sovereign is, is to be possessing supreme or ultimate power. And so we're invited to consider that God has supreme and ultimate power power here. Now you'll wonder, well, where does that come from? And I want you to see, just listen to this unfolding of history in such a way that doesn't just give you a sequence of events, but it gives you a sense of cause and effect. It's not just that things are unfolding and happening, it's that in light of things that are unfolding and happening, there is a being who possesses supremacy and ultimacy. Did you catch it? Look at verse 12. There's this picture of something going on, People did whatever was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they started serving Baal. Right, this was a a, a primitive god, and it's it's especially important. It's believed that God is uh, that Baal was like the god of thunder, and so that's especially important when you see elsewhere in the Old Testament when when you hear this declaration that that it is God who causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the wicked. Right, it, just don't, don't miss what it, it's it's intentionally subverting the cultural idols, saying no 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 that's that's, that's not how it reigns. God is sovereign over those things. So they do whatever they want verse 12. Now listen, they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. Did you catch that language? God, who had brought them. So there's a sequence of events where in the book of Exodus, we find out that the Egyptians all of a sudden let an entire, like they had subjugated an entire culture of people to slave labor, and then all of a sudden just let them go. And a historian might dig in and go, hey, you know, what causes this? What made this happen? But but the book of Judges and the rest of the Bible says it seems like a haphazard sequence of events. But what does it say here? It was God who brought them out. He actually brought them out. Look in verse 14. See the language? God, he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And then he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies. Look at verse 15. The hand of the Lord was against them for harm. Notice, there's there's events that are unfolding, and yet the book of Judges makes it clear here, no, they're not just happening. God is guiding them. God is doing something. The hand of the Lord was against them for harm. And then it says, apparently this was exactly how God had warned. That is, the unfolding of history under God's sovereign reign was not an accident. Verse 16, look at it. What happened then? Judges emerged. Why? Because they were really cool, really popular, really easy to follow? No, the Lord raised them up, and the Lord used them to save them. Verse 18, was the judge particularly talented or awesome? No, it was the Lord who was with the judge, and it was the Lord who used the judge to save them. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of their enemies. Their enemies, these these enemies around them that wanted to harm them. Verse 21, what do we find? This declaration. I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations. So they're stuck in this situation that's very difficult, and you're looking at it going, like, well, why is this happening? What's, what's going on in this distress? And we find in verse 21, it says it, it's God. God is actually withholding this. Verse 23, so the Lord left those nations. He did not give them into the hands of Joshua. Now don't miss the profoundly provocative thing that this chapter, and I would argue the rest of the Bible, is proposing that God is sovereign over every single possible thing. As the dictionary would say it, God possesses supreme and ultimate power. Now here's what I want to tell you. This is a mystery. (laughs) This is a mystery to be reflected upon. How this plays out is uh, the object of, hopefully, my encouragement every single week. There's To some extent, I'm walking through the ways in which God is sovereign, and yet, mysteriously, people are responsible. Because did you see interwoven of these, in, in these verses of God's sovereignty, did you see in verse 7, there are people who are responsible. What happened in verse 17? They did not listen. They whored after other gods. Thanks, judges. Tell us what you really think. All right? And they bowed down to them. They soon turned aside. Did you catch that? God is sovereign. But did you hear that? They did this. Then they did this. Then they did this. Look at verse 19. Then they turned back. And then they were more corrupt, going after other gods. They're even worse than their parents. And they're serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of those practices. And they did not drop any of their stubborn ways. All the way to verse 6 of chapter 3. What did they do? They took their daughters of the people they lived among, they took for themselves as wives, and then they gave their own daughters to their sons. And then, what's, here's the climax of the introduction. Did you catch it? What they do? Ultimately, they served those gods. And there's this mystery, isn't it? God being sovereign and big and powerful, and yet people being responsible. You see, all Christians believe that God is sovereign. Over exactly what? Not all Christians agree. Instead, it's a mystery we wrestle with. And we're encountering here all throughout the book of Judges, and I would say all throughout the Bible and all throughout existence and eternity, that people are doing one thing and God is doing another. Another you see juxtaposed the will of human beings and the will of God. A profound mystery to be understood. I want to invite you to wrestle with it. Certainly not exhaustively here, but throughout this book and throughout your life. Because the first offensive statement of sovereignty is met with skepticism, I imagine. Is there even a God? Is there a supreme power? And if there is a God, is he good? How would I know? And if he really is powerful, what's he doing? In fact, why do Christians even call him a he, right? Like these are all good, like good, skeptical, like, who is this God? Why, why do we think this way? And the Bible starts out with a God who is sovereign over everything, who brings everything into being by the counsel of his will, by his decree and command. That's important because that means that the Bible is a polemical argument. That is that the very first text of the Bible is to say that God is sovereign, making good things. Whereas every other ancient Near East um, narrative would have said that the ways that the things are in the world are a result of these, you know, cataclysmic kinds of disagreements between these gods these deities have argued and and every single one of these ancient near east cultures had kind of a narrative where there was a fight there was some conflict and whatever happened next like well it was like the the weird stepchild or like they they fought and the pieces of the dead one fall down and that's that's how the pagans would have explained that's why things are the way they are and so when the bible comes along and says no the world isn't didn't come about by chaos These things didn't come about by conflict. They came about by a good, loving, and gracious God who gives good things because He's just good. He gives enjoyable things because He's just good. And the first rhythm of that life, did you remember that from Genesis 1 and 2? The seventh day, God rested. Why? Because He was tired. And He said, no, you're going to rest every seven days. a rhythm of work and rest. Why? Because God was tired? No, because He's awesome. And He likes to give good things to His people. It's not haphazard. It's not the result of some lost battle. We're not debris. We are divinely inspired. We are dust, enlivened with the breath of God. And yet we take that image that He has given to us, and we use it against Him and against His person against his purposes and so the first question that follows is there a god is how, how do i know him what do i know about him the heavens declare his handiwork the bible says that is there's something in the world that that you can see his fingerprints romans was romans one tells us that everyone knows there's something bigger everyone senses there's something bigger going on and even in the place where right now you're you're hoping is there more to this is this all there is Friend, be encouraged. That's the image of God echoing in your restless soul. Or you're just really cool and really smart. You're just a really deep thinker who considers big, awesome things. That's possible. Or it's possible that the God of the universe has imprinted himself on you. And his fingerprints are visible even in your deepest longings for meaning. May ask yourself this why are you sad when a person dies? Why? If there's no meaning, if this is some chaotic debris smashing against itself, why are you so sad? In fact, why would you ever be disappointed by anything that has ever happened? Ask yourself this who taught you to expect good things anyway? Who told you there was going to be something good in the world to enjoy? Who told you there was going to be anything less than suffering? Did you get it? Even our, even our deepest sadnesses and longings are echoes of a God who has imprinted expectations for His communion. The Bible says that we are the problem, and that even though we've been endowed with this gift, we overthrow God, we rebel against His good design. God is in charge, he's sovereign over all things, but we do whatever we want. My favorite, I, I learned most of the important lessons in my own life uh, in ag class or shop class. I don't know if you were blessed with such a thing, but that's where you begin to, I have power, I will build weapons and destruction, right? That's, I, I'm that, I learned most of my life lessons. I, yeah. My favorite thing is uh, my ag teacher, FFA, shout out, here we go. Not really, that's not you shouldn't. I no, anyway. <laughs> on almost every single tool in the shop, he had printed out, this is not a hammer. If you, if you have any tools, you know exactly what we're talking about. On every single tool he had like written out, like in, on a marker, like, this is not a hammer. Because one of the first, like you're working on something, you're taking it apart, or something doesn't quite fit instead of getting up and going to get a hammer, whatever you're holding, all of a sudden, hey, this will work. And it won't. And destruction ensues. And all I would tell you is, if there is a God who is sovereign over all things, and He has designed things for the way that they ought to be, then there's like this cosmic, this is not a hammer on every single thing we take into our hands. This is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not how this is meant to be used. Sex, relationships, intimacy, money. This was not meant to hit and destroy things, it was designed to image God's goodness. And God is sovereign over all of these things, even though they're in chaos. By getting the glory and salvation through judgment, did you catch that? They were responsible for what they had done. They deserved God's judgment. And you saw some some pretty profound language for that. Did you Did you not hear that? Like God is angry. God is wrathful. And so one of the things I, one of my mentors would say is like, when you think about the God of the Bible, if you're in this room and like God is angry at sinners and sin, and that offends you. I want to encourage you. That means you've almost understood it. Being offended by this is the first step to actually hearing and understanding it. It's going like, "What? Who is God? Who is God to do this?" Right? There's a whole books devoted to this. I encourage you to read the book of Job. Who is God? And he's like, "Oh, really? Who really? Who am I? Who, who am I? Who, who are you?" That's I just summarized the book of Job for you. <laughs> and literally, there's no answer. It's like. Hey, Job, where were you when I made everything? Where were you when I invented this? Where were you when I brought this? And Job's like, oh, you're right, my bad. Like, this, this is the story of the Bible. And we rebel against him, and yet God, even though he is wrathful over this, this is meant to be a good thing, right? Like, just, just stop for a minute. You're, I know you're going to be sensitive to thinking that there's an angry God somewhere, but just, just realize this. You, you experience righteous anger over everything you love and value. If I took the thing or harmed the thing that you love very dearly and you weren't angry, it shows what? You weren't really loving. Anger is the overflow, the righteous overflow of experiencing harm towards something valuable. And so they deserve, they're responsible for their actions. They deserve God's anger and wrath, and they get it. Did you catch that over and over? The Lord was angry and he, He He caused them to be in distress. God is sovereign over it by saving, granting salvation to people who deserve judgment. They deserve his righteous anger and yet experience, do you see what happens in verse 16? His grace. Now, here's what I would say is Christians often disagree about what God is sovereign over, but the, the Bible is more clear. We in verse, verse 89, one, uh, verse 89, or verse, uh, so, okay, here we go.
1: Verse 89
0: of Psalm 119. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations, even wandering ones in the book of Judges. It's going to be helpful and encouraging for us. You have established the earth. Did you hear it? And it stands fast. By your appointment, speaking of these generations, they stand to this day. For all things are your servants. Now, we would even say that God is sovereign not over just every little thing, but even things that you, you really don't want him to be sovereign over. Because you really wish you were. And so post-enlightenment thinking will come along and say that we have what we call free will. And I just want to encourage you, the phrase free will is never found in the Bible with respect to anything good. Did you catch their will? Did you catch what the people really wanted to do? Th- their will was really good at summing up sin, right? And so this is a beautiful thing. This is a beautiful thing. It's, it's 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 at first it's gonna be it'll hurt, but that means you're you're getting it. That means you're beginning to understand just how big God is. And so we would say, even God is sovereign over salvation. God is sovereign over salvation, and that hurts at first, because you're like, I do what I want, right? I am free. Right? One of my favorite of the founding fathers, or you know, Patrick Henry. Give me liberty, or what? I'd rather die, right? Give me death. I am free. But notice, I, did you catch this? God started to save based on what? Did you catch it? Was, was there, in verse 11 through 15, was there any repentance? Was there any real sorrow over their sin and rebellion? No. And then all of a sudden, what happens in verse 16? The Lord raises up judges to save them. Just make sure you get this. The Bible is, does not mince word. God is sovereign over all things. He is the initiator of salvation. And friend, while that starts as a confrontation, what I would tell you is it becomes a great comfort. Because if I save myself, then I can ruin it myself. And friend, I have tried. But if he saved me, if saving me was his idea, <laughs> if it was his purpose, his plan, his promise, then friend, I get to rest. And that offense of, I, I, you know, I want to do what I want, that offense gives way to rest. And I go, oh, thank God. Thank God he doesn't give me what I want. Thank God that he intervenes to save me. And So Christians often disagree on this. And I would say the reason we do is because we are looking into a mystery. The way I would summarize this, the sovereignty, rule, and reign of God is not an equation to be solved, but a cause for awe and worship of God. God's sovereignty is not just something you're supposed to figure out. And I couldn't. You couldn't either. It's beyond us. And so when we see this mystery of, am I responsible or is God, we're meant to go, wow, God must be big. God must be amazing. And we worship. The good news is that God's good plans for His glory and our joy and flourishing are not thwarted by even our best or worst attempts. Uh, Last week, I wanted to share this. I got permission to do this, but I wanted to share this. Um, Last week, I didn't preach uh, because I was busy uh, wishing for death, praying to a toilet to kill me. Uh, a stomach bug decimated our gospel community on thursday eight people plus kids all had a stomach bug um yeah yeah it's it's a bad deal but we were just we were just being biblical acts one and two says we hold all things in common right so we're just like let's commiserate right and uh while i was wishing for death i uh i don't handle sickness well i just don't maybe you you do i don't handle sickness well and uh and so, thankfully, my brother Andy was ready uh, to preach, shared God's word, and didn't pick up in Judges. Did something he had preached even that week. Picked up Psalm 77. And if I were just to illustrate, I can think of a lot of ways to illustrate this. This is the one of the most poignant things. How can God be sovereign and good in the midst of awful circumstances? Even though we're rebelling against him, how can God be sovereign and good? Well, here you go. There's a text message Andy and I received. I just wanted to let you know that I wanted to let both you two know that you were not wrong when you said that God could work through sickness and even hurried preparedness for his good. You see, my dad has been struggling with bitterness, hurt, and anger at the church pretty much since my mom died eight years ago. I've even always questioned his faith and have not seen the fruit of faith in his own life. Two months ago, I had a conversation with him, and he sounded like he was a man that would never attend a church again. But recently he started going back. And this Sunday, he was in tears after hearing God's message, message through Andy. Then tears of joy came from me as we sang. So I just wanted to encourage you guys by sharing what the Holy Spirit is doing. Now I want to put that in front of you To let you know this is the kind of encouragement in in light of suffering that that sounds best, right? Because you're left wondering like what what should you say to a person that's suffering? Like I I wish God would have just told me, hey, ask Andy to preach, stay home. (laughs) Everyone in my my gospel community is like, exactly. Exactly. And we're left with a mystery think about it. did God inflict our gospel community and me with a stomach bug I don't know and I don't know how you should encourage people inflicted with such suffering I don't think you should go in with all the answers I don't I don't think it's that simple most of that stuff you don't see until hindsight so like the, when someone's suffering the the best thing is not to like you know adjust your glasses the thing is to hug them unless they're throwing up in which case you just say I love you From here. Did God orchestrate a sickness? I don't know. And I hope I'm never the kind of person who pretends to know. But did sickness thwart his purpose? Did sickness get in the way of what God meant to do to bring joy to his people? Get it? And that's a mystery. I'm the first, I mean, well, actually, it was this, this, yeah, I know, we were trying to figure that out, too. Like, who brought it? Who, who made us sick? Like, who did it? I mean, that, we, we, that's I'm, right, it's me. I'm like, who did this? Who brought this sickness into our house and made us sick? And Judges goes like, you, you, you can try that all you want. You can try that all you want. You can blame whoever you want. But if you follow that one all the way back to the unmoved mover, you will find a divine being who works all things together for good. Do we understand it? Do we enjoy it? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But friend, there is real evidence around us of the ways that God is not thwarted by even the worst attempts. The enemies of God's people meant to destroy them, and yet what, what did God respond with? They brought all the sin, and he brought all the grace. And God gets the glory for this. this There's a second theme I want you to see. There's two more. I'm going to run through them. The second theme you see is the picture of idolatry described in graphic terms. You see, idolatry, going after other gods. The last word there, right? Verse 6 of chapter 3, they served those other gods. Idolatry is covenantal marital unfaithfulness through prostitution. This is a theme that's picked up elsewhere. Now, I I don't mean, I'm I'm not at all going to try to be graphic or try to be salacious in this. In fact, I try to craft these kinds of things, even so that my own daughter's, Can engage in conversations like that. So, even like, what is a prostitute? It's a person who sells themselves. Instead of experiencing the loving and tender communion of of a, a husband and a wife, they sell themselves and they give away what God meant for joy and intimacy to the highest bidder. They sell off what is a prized possession of someone who loves you and cares for you. That's what it is. But throughout the Old and New Testament, this is a theme. This is a picture. In the book of Hosea, as we saw a few years ago, I encourage you, it's on our website. We walk through Hosea, and there's this picture of God telling Hosea, a prophet, a minor prophet, said, hey, go marry a prostitute who will cheat on you and be unfaithful to you and be committed to faithfulness to her. You go, why? He said, I want the world to see what it's like to be me that I have committed myself, I have given myself to a people that even though they are unfaithful, even though they chase after other things, right? hence the righteous anger, I'm still going to give myself for them. I'm going to give myself. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep speaking. I'm going to keep calling them back to myself. And I will purchase them out of it. It's picked up in Jeremiah, it's picked up in Isaiah, all the way until finally, if you ever heard me preach a sermon at a, at a wedding, I'm like a broken record, I've only got one thing, hey, this, this wedding thing, it's not about you, it's about Jesus. Ephesians 5 says that ultimately Christ will lay down his life for the church and it will be a picture of what a husband and a bride look like. The church and her Savior coming together that points to a bigger party one day that we're going to gather around the throne and it's going to be a big wedding feast. Blessed are those invited to the wedding feast of the lamb. It's pointing to something bigger. We see it here. Did you catch it? They hoard after other gods. It's not just that they said, God, we want something else. Listen to this. It's that they profited from it. It's not just, hey, I don't want you. It's, I want to make a living off of my unfaithfulness to you. Now here, this is profound, because I know many of you in this room, I know many of you have felt and witnessed firsthand the effects of unfaithfulness in a marriage. I know that. And in this sense, this isn't meant to poke or goad you. This is meant to encourage especially you. Because while we might be prone to look at an unfaithful spouse and be like, that's awful, that's the worst, it kind of is. We're not meant to say, that's the worst. Boy, they are awful. We're meant to go, oh, I'm the worst. I do the same thing. I sell myself off, I give myself over to the highest bidder. I pursue lesser things than what God has intended for me. It's meant to be an encouragement. So that we will see the vastness, so that we will begin to see the the weight of God's mercy to people who don't deserve it. And you'll say, well, what do we do? What do we do with our unfaithfulness, God? What do I do now that I've given myself over to lesser things? He says, don't worry, I will not give up on you. Then you'll see a couple of other things after this. You see the language of testing and warring. At the very end of chapter 2, did you catch that? They're going to be in and among these gods, and it will be a test, right? But, but make sure you notice throughout the Bible here, and this will help you understand the book of Judges, tests expose our weaknesses. Now, tests are for us, not God, right? Tests are to expose something to us. We learn something about God and about us. Think of it this way. God is omniscient. He is, that is, he is all-knowing. So therefore, nothing has ever occurred to God. Right? Nothing is, God has never had an idea. Right? God has never had a plan B. God is, Think of it this way. God has never wondered about anything. God's knowledge is perfect, sufficient, and complete. And so the test is to reveal us. It's for us to begin to see dimly what God knows fully. That is, you begin to see... Our unfaithfulness in the backdrop of God's faithfulness. But these tests ultimately to expose us and to let us know the place where God wants to apply the deepest and greatest amounts of grace. But then the last part, did you catch it? So we've seen you see this picture of God's sovereignty even over and amidst human beings' responsibility. Then you see this picture of rebelling against that as, as idolatry, against his covenant promises. And then the result is that we're in a spot that we're exposed, we're tested, and then, he says, we go to war. Did you catch that in chapter 3? The Lord left them there so that, in verse 2, it was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war. To teach war to those who had not known it before. What's he talking about? Well, again, if you go back to the book of Joshua, you'll see a picture of some amazing military battles where God delivers, because these people are so idolatrous, they've stirred up God's anger because they're sacrificing their children, and God's like, you're out. And and so he begins to inflict justice upon these people through the Israelites. And as they walk in, there's this series of miraculous, amazing military battles. And there was a generation that came that was just entitled. And maybe they'd heard that God had delivered their enemies into their hands but they didn't really believe it and so they were allowed to begin to experience the conflict the turmoil of living among these idolatrous people so what? so they would know that this costs that to live among an idolatrous people seeking to be faithful to a promise keeping God is to experience war you see this elsewhere right? When Ezekiel gives this beautiful picture, right, of, of these bones, these desolate, dead, and dry bones, and, then, and God says, Ezekiel t- prophesied to the bones. It's like, they're dead. Why would I? And he, he said, and the word of God flows through them. They come to life. And what does it say happens? What's formed there after they're given new life is an army. They were brought to life to be an army. God's people were raised from death to life to battle, to join in the battle. But notice, it's not any kind of battle. So for some of you, you're like, yeah, exactly, conflict, let's do this. And you want to go to battle, right? And some of you are like, ew, they're fighting, right? Miss, you've both missed on the wrong side. Remember, this is a gospel seed. This is meant to be a gospel seed so that you will begin to see, oh, if God's people are meant to war against his enemies, how does that play out? Well, if you go back to the book of Joshua, one of the first and best um, victories that they had, do you remember what it was? They walked to Jericho, right? And they were like, us we're going to tear this place down. He's like, God's like, no, actually, I need you to get the band together. And they circle the city until finally the walls fall down. Why? Why would that happen? So that they would know, though they are an army, they have nothing to do with the victory. They are simply glad, unmerited recipients of God's victory so that they and the nations would know there's nothing special about these people. They just have a God that apparently works through music. Like you just play it, and and, and that's meant to make them afraid. Like who would want to oppose this God? These people don't even have to be big, big, strong, smart, or righteous. God's just going to bless them because he's gracious. And battle exposes obedience. Battle exposes your real loyalty. Battle exposes war. Conflict exposes what you really value. So take this even and apply it superficially. Are you a person who avoids conflict? Do you hear it? Do you feel it? Do you feel where that conflict exposes what you really worship? And put it this way. What hard conversations are you putting off right now? What's the hard conversation you are avoiding right now? And if you look a little more deeply into that, you'll probably see an idol. Probably something that you worship and trust in more than God's providence. I would say the other side of that coin is if you're like, I, I can't wait to start a fight. Okay. Well, you've missed the God, that God's grace is that he paves the way. He is the one who softens the enemy to destroy the enemy. Not you. But if you look closely, conflict, battle, war, reveals what you value, what you really worship. And according to chapter 3 here, these first few verses, that's, did you catch, it's actually God's good mercy to teach you that. It's actually God's good gift to show you, hey, I see you don't really trust. I win the battle. And so you're running from it. If you're going to live in a world surrounded by idols, this is what it needs to look like. And so you're left, maybe, with this tension. Can God be good over these distresses, verse 15 and 16, the suffering? Can God help us when we're unfaithful. What, what is God going to do in the midst of the conflict that I currently find myself in? What is it that God means to do? Well, Hebrews 12, I commend to you this week, is meant to be a reflection on God disciplining those He loves. And you know that's true. Like if your kid acts up, I'm going to give him candy. I'm an enabler. I just want him to like me. They're not my kid. You figure it out. But if my kid acts up, oh, I got my mom's bug eyes. The angry face. And you can tell which children are mine because of how I interact with them. And so I would tell you this, this is a picture of this distress is meant to expose what God wants to bring about in us. He disciplines those that he loves, that he genuinely loves. This is important because his discipline is never retribution. This is the good news. In the midst of this suffering, and especially in the midst, if, if did you just catch this, God is teaching them something. God is disciplining them in some way. And here's what we're prone to believe. That is anti-gospel. We're, we're prone to believe God is punishing me. God is punishing. Friend, no, 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 no. He is disciplining you. And you can rest easy in Christ, knowing that all of the punishments that you have deserved have been freely taken by Jesus, so that all that is left for us to receive is his discipline. His discipline is always temporary. His punishments and wrath are final, but thanks be to God, Jesus has absorbed it. And so you can rest. And so what do we do with this? What do we do? How, How do we wrestle with this idea that something good could come out of something so bad how do we make sense of the fact that we're so unfaithful and how, how do we make sense of the fact that we are somehow in a battle that we feel like we are losing and friend do you hear the echoes that come to full throat in the gospel jesus is the ultimate good out of bad friend there is nothing worse that has ever happened than when the perfect spotless sinless righteous son of god who was completely innocent was betrayed handed over and killed there is no worse day and christians call it good friday because if you ever wonder can God use this? Could God make something good out of this mess? We look to the cross and say, oh, that's what he loves to do. And maybe you're living in suffering in this moment. You're living in a place and you're wondering, well, I've been unfaithful. What, what, what do I do now? Friend, sit back and receive the, the king who has lowered himself to die for his bride. Unfaithful though, she is. He has won the battle. He has done these things. See, God is able to sovereignly use suffering, unfaithfulness and conflict for His good purposes. They don't stop Him. So maybe you're in this room, and you're like, "Yeah, I'm suffering. I'm living in a difficult time." And you're probably right now crying out, like, is there, "Is there any meaning in this? Why is this happening?" And if you're like me, you probably point it straight to God, and you begin to say something like, "God, are you going to do anything?" are you going to do anything about all that's broken here are you going to do anything to fix all of this chaos and this corruption and god responds in jesus and he says yes i already have i have worked good through the worst possible suffering i have died for the unfaithful bride i have won the battle God has used all of these things. Now, here's the thing. You might be just thinking like, oh, well, that just means I can endure suffering. Right? I, can just, I, can, I can just take it. But notice that's not what God does with this. He doesn't just allow us to endure pain and suffering and death. He actually makes pain, suffering, and death His servants. Remember what I just told you about Good Friday? It wasn't just that God survived Right? It wasn't just that like Jesus was like, whew, glad I made it through that. No. He actually took the instruments of his torture and death and made them his servants. And made them work for him. Here's the way I would wrap up. This is how I would describe the sovereignty of God in suffering and awfulness. The place I recommend to you several years ago, my oldest daughter, we went to the Children's Museum in Brookings. I commend it to you. And outside of the Children's Museum, if you take a two and a four-year-old, which I don't know that you should, stay inside until they're five or six. If you take them outside, there is an exhibit with dinosaurs. And this picture doesn't do it justice. They, they, they look real. Now, that's especially important for me. My life was changed by Jurassic Park. I don't know what that was for you. But I was like, girls, come look at this look at this thing, and it's it's like roaring loudly. And these poor little girls—they go outside, and, and they're immediately terrified. Immediately terrified. They see. I mean, and there's one that you can go right face to face. I'm like, no, come, come look. And they're terrified because they think this. No, I. This is a. Di- I've seen. I, yeah, I, this is bad. Be- this is scary. All these teeth, the loud roaring, the massive size of this thing. And they saw this massive dinosaur. There was a robot. And so I pulled them close, put my arms around them, and I said, listen, this thing is just a puppet. This thing has been dead for thousands of years. That thing's fate was sealed thousands of years ago. All that's left now is this puppet that is controlled by someone else. And it's put here to teach us. (laughs) How, How do we make sense of these fossils we find, right? And it's there for us to understand the way the world works. And I said, you don't have to be afraid. Yes, this thing's vicious. It can kill. But rest easy, its fate was sealed long ago. It was placed here to teach us a lesson. And this thing has the power to scare the uninitiated. But you'll notice something. They started watching him closely and he starts like to move in robotic ways. The little arms and they just like right. I'm sorry, I just did the robot in front of you. <laughs> if you're playing like Pastor Jonathan Bingo, you can check that off. Started play, I can't do this one out of my hands. He started to move in very robotic ways. And it began To be clear to the girls that this thing just kind of worked in repetitive motions that that weren't alive at all. And they began to see through it. And friend, I have good news for you. Did you catch that there's enemies that want to plunder and destroy God's people? And I want you to know right now, there is an enemy and he wants to destroy you. But friend, because of Jesus, his fate has been sealed long ago. And all that is left is a puppet. Puppet. A puppet that only simply does what the Lord will allow him to do and nothing more. And it has the power to scare the uninitiated. But it is a vast and powerful reminder of how safe and blessed we are by the puppet master. He is good, he is sovereign, and he is over these things. And he not only allows us to endure suffering, but he allows suffering to become his puppet. His puppet. So in a moment here, we're going to celebrate this in a way that we do regularly. We celebrate communion. We celebrate communion. And I want you to hear what Paul tells the New Testament church as they celebrate it. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, listen to this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Do you hear that? It isn't just that we endure death. It's that God takes even the worst of things, even death, uses it as a puppet to display his mercy now he warns us whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the lord so let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself So in a moment here, we're going to be invited to take the Lord's Supper together, to experience communion with God, and in a very real and powerful way, take what is a symbol of death, decay, suffering, and destruction, and as only a Christian can do, experience it as nourishment. Experience it as a reminder of God's good purpose in spite of the worst circumstances. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for your mercy towards us. We thank you that it was visibly displayed for us in Christ. We thank you that there is now no power that can condemn us, that can destroy us. The enemy that has set himself up against us has been defeated. His claws and his fangs have been removed. Because Jesus took the best shots that the enemy could give, and he resurrected victorious over them. Thank you now that you work good things even through awful circumstances. Thank you that you are faithful to the unfaithful. Thank you that you have won the battle, the victory in such a profound way, such that all we have left to do is to worship you. So maybe if there's some in this room and this seems like a far-fetched fairy tale, might you even today begin to inspire in them a curiosity that they might consider the possibility that you actually are working things together for good, that those pangs of longing and suffering, there's things inside of us that we, we know allow us to look at things and say, that's not right, that they're actually just the image of God, they're actually just the echoes of your invitation to come back. So maybe this morning, for those of us in this room, maybe we know this, maybe we've heard this, but we regularly forget, and we regularly have sold ourselves off to lesser things. Might today we turn from them and realize that you have taken the place of the unfaithful. You have stepped down and broken yourself and poured yourself out so that we would know the lasting grace of the Father. Meet us now at the table in a way that only you can. We ask this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.